Hello and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by SoundSource from Rogue Amoeba. Woohoo! I'm Simone de Rochefort, senior video producer at Polygon.com, and I'm here today with Christina Warren, senior cloud advocate at Microsoft, and Brianna Wu, Democratic candidate for Congress. With a golden arm. With a golden arm. She's got a golden... Brianna, you have to take off that golden arm. No! No! Christina, promise me you won't let Simone take my golden arm. It's for your own good, Brie. You're dying. We'll explain later. Um, hey, we have a very exciting show for you this week. We are we are gonna we're gonna hit a couple fast news topics at the top, and then we have finally we finally decided that we had enough bandwidth in our minds to discuss contact tracing. So look forward to that. <laughs> um, it's a topic we've been avoiding for, I think, a month now. Um, and then we're going to, I'm going to dip out and let Bree and Christina talk a bit about Quibi. And then we'll be back at the end of the show for some delicious, delicious Final Fantasy VII. How does that sound to y'all? I'm into it. It sounds oh, yeah. real good. First up, these awesome quick news hits. The Magic Keyboard's for sale, y'all. It's up now. Uh, I bought it. You bought bought it? it. So delivery as listed for me right now is between April 24th and May 1st. Not not bad. Not bad. Yeah, I'm really surprised with coronavirus that it's uh, the shipping is that quick on it. Uh, You know, Relay God in chief, uh, Mike Hurley, he managed to get his for uh, the very first week. So he will get his before the 24th. But I'm looking forward to getting that. And we will tell everyone out there if a keyboard can somehow be worth 300 damn dollars. (laughs) Yes, I I have not ordered yet because I am potentially going to have to spend a thousand dollars. I didn't think I needed to spend on a camera because my RX100 Mark 5A uh, really just doesn't like to be on um, uh, as as long as it is to be used as kind of like a, um, a, a Twitch streaming YouTube camera or whatever. It just really doesn't like to be on Why that much. Why is your and, company and covering that? Because a webcam would, be suffi- would suffice and I just don't want to use a webcam. It's not fancy enough for you. Come on, Christina Warren, sir. So, so yeah. the thing is, like, oh, right. So, I have like this nine hundred dollar camera um, that was that was more when I bought it. And so, I if I'm going to buy another camera, the thing is, and they probably could cover, they probably would cover part of this if I expensed like a a, a five hundred dollar camera. But I don't want a five hundred dollar camera. I want something that has the ability to do four K. So, if I'm going to go in, I'm just going to go ahead and go all in. So, anyway, I might be buying a a, a a6400 so well, that i can't well. wait to hear how that is yeah let us know oh my gosh our so. next quick news hit is something that's less expensive well not less expensive than the keyboard but less expensive than that camera a new iphone se was announced Woo-hoo. today a second generation se 4.7 inch display a13 bionic chip touch id home button to up to 260 56 56 i can read gigabytes of storage um, the downside, not downsides, but you know, the, the reasons that it costs as much as it does, which I believe is $400 are it's got LCD display instead of OLED aluminum frame instead of stainless steel. And of course, as I said, still touch ID rather than face ID. And then the camera is just less good, but yeah, I think and it's as, only one camera. Yeah. Only one camera. And as we kind of discussed in previous episodes, I think we're all really excited to see the SE come back and especially in this particular moment in time. 
Yeah, no, I think this is I, great. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. And maybe you all disagree, but like to me, the appeal of the iPhone SE was the smaller form factor. I mean, it was very cute. You could fit it in any purse on earth. And I, I, you shove it in an iPhone 8, like that's a large phone. And I like the price point, obviously, but I just don't get it. I mean, am I missing something? It's still under five inches, which yeah, exactly. to me is, I mean, it's I, not I, as small yeah. as it used to be, but it's still smaller. Right. I mean, it, look, I, look, it's four years later. Uh, this is now the smallest phone that Apple has available. And look, realistically, I know that there are people who love the iPhone 5 um, form factor and you know, uh, are, are saying they will never, they can't get a, a bigger phone. And look, I have incredibly small hands, uh, to the point that frankly, an iPhone eight would be a two handed phone for me. So that's actually one of the reasons why I have a bigger phone now is because I've kind of come to the terms. I'm like, if I'm going to have to use two hands, no matter what I do, I might as well get the better battery life. Like that has actually been the way that I've had to kind of justify this. So I, I totally do understand people who are like, Oh, I just really like to have a, a, a small device with the caveat that I actually think that even the, the five S uh, you know, the five size is for some people, including myself, not quite really a one handed phone. It definitely is more than some of the others. Having said that, yeah, it's four years later now, everybody at this point has had, you know, I think are, are used to these, you know, even bigger sizes. At this point, it's still going to be significantly smaller than the iPhone 11, which is actually bigger than the iPhone 11 Pro. Uh, and and I think that while for some people the appeal was was the small size, I think for a bigger percentage of people, it was the fact that you had um, really up-to-date specs, but in a lower cost. You know, I mean, I think that's the big thing here is that the, the camera is not going to be as good um, but it's not bad by any stretch. It's really fast. Uh, it doesn't have face ID, but, uh, you know, touch ID, I think for some people might even be preferable, especially now that we're all supposed to be wearing masks when we go outside and, you know, $400, like you're really, you're coming in now at an actual affordable price. So to me, the price was always the big thing, not the yeah. size, but I think that's we, fair. I think that's fair. I just think it's it's certainly a market differentiator. But I mean, in the middle of a global pandemic, when one out of ten Americans are currently unemployed, uh, I think this is the right Apple product for the uh, for the moment. And I also yeah. think whenever the flagship comes out later this year, I don't think Apple's going to be able to get away with charging us what was it sixteen hundred for the maxed out version of the iPhone. I yeah. just don't yeah. see that happening again. Man, that's going to be something to. I'm I'm very excited. Not excited. I'm anticipating seeing what the um, new phone prices are this year. You're totally right. That's going to be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, no, that is interesting. It's too early to tell if they'll be able to, to charge that or not. But it's been interesting because a lot of us have been complaining even as we've paid um, yeah. <laughs> the money um, every year. And it's going to come to a point, though, where people just aren't, no matter what argument you make. And, and it can be a valid argument to a certain extent that says, look, look, this is the computer that you use more than anything else, blah, 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 blah. Sure. You know, where that argument falls apart a lot more is when, um, you don't have the same sort of income or you've been furloughed or your spouse has been, um, furloughed or laid off, or, you know, your pay has been cut or whatever the case may be, then mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter at all. Like whether it's the most used device you have, if it costs too much, you're either not upgrading, um, or yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? Like it comes down to, I'm either not buying a phone no matter what it costs, or it's going to have to cost 
a certain amount of money for me to even consider yeah, it. Yeah, and like devil's advocate on the size, I think that's maybe another reason why this size is I, I'm not as bothered by it is that people who are buying this phone might not be like entry level smartphone users. It might be people who have had to who are used to a bigger phone who have had to make yep. changes in their lives. Yeah. So th- and and I would say too, again, I just I think it's been four years and for for better or worse you know, big phones are the norm and they have been for even longer than that. But it was, it was actually a surprise that they came back out with that mm-hmm. form factor, you know, when, when I the SE move came us out. On to I know, the I, next I'm topic. just saying, I'm, I'm just saying it, big phones are here. If they won, <laughs> big phones won. All right. So that guy comes in black, white and product red. Now it's time to talk about contact tracing. I've got a big, uh, I've got a lot of information to cover for you up top here. <laughs> so, like I said, this is a topic we that has come up at, like in our planning chat a couple times, and every time we've been like, "Oh God, <laughs> we're too depressed." But it's finally time. Apple and Google are working together to on contract tracing efforts to fight the COVID nineteen pandemic, and the idea is that this would be a tech based solution to as society reopens. If somebody is tested positive for COVID nineteen, this would be a system where people who they have been in contact with could be notified that, hey, you have come in contact with someone who has tested positive. You should do something about it. So it would be a way to ostensibly limit the spread of a disease um, that has shut down a lot of our world. Uh, Contact tracing was notably implemented in Singapore in the very early stages of coronavirus over there. But Singapore, like many other countries, has since had to go into lockdown despite what appeared to be early success with contact tracing in fighting coronavirus. Um, And we're going to discuss today some of the, I guess, how it's going to, how ostensibly Apple and Google say it's going to work, and then what some of the problems and concerns that we have are. Uh, Some of the ones outlined in the interface this week by Casey Newton are, one, it, it is voluntary, which is, it is a problem in having it have widespread success. It's not a problem in the sense of, you know, we like things to be opt-in. Um, two, it would use Bluetooth, which can come up with a lot of false positives depending on where the phone is. Um, I would add privacy to that list in general. Um, Casey yep. doesn't uh, for reasons which we'll get into later. Um, do you guys mind if I just go over really quickly how this would how apple and google told journalists this would work please please cool so apple and google are saying the respective apps would be managed by public health agencies so the private companies wouldn't have this data people who are diagnosed would be given a one-time code by their i guess public by a health official to use to trigger the alert and that the um, system would be dismantled when the crisis ends um and oh i thought i had more information on this yes aha there it is in this other paragraph that i wrote down um people who have opted into the system uh apple and google say will be notified on their device so it's a hardware level like like an os level notification if they've been exposed even if the person who has opted in hasn't downloaded the relevant app and at that point they would probably be um encouraged to download the relevant app from the public health agency Uh, For Android users, Google says that this is an OS update that would be pushed through the Google Play Store so it wouldn't rely on carriers. For iOS users, we're on iOS. 
Um, so that is what the companies are saying about how this would work now. Um, it is very early stages yet. So this is all just based on what they've told journalists who talked to them about it and asked a bunch of questions about, hey, what are you guys doing? Um, so, okay, let's get into it. How do y'all feel about this? I suspect Christina and I are, have different opinions on this. Um, I, rights, I, folks. I, I think that, I, I think that, this obviously has some massive, massive privacy concerns, but this is what makes me more comfortable with it. So just to get into some of the technical nitty gritty, it's using the Bluetooth LE uh, standard to facilitate this. So long story short, Bluetooth LE is a really good standard for this because it works with every single smartphone, no matter the range. It's a pretty universally accepted standard. Um, and it's very, uh, it's relatively short range. So you're not gonna have false positives if you're you know, through a wall of a building or something like that. Um, so the standard, as it's described from the, from the proposal paper, um, the way it works is, uh, let's say uh, John is out there doing his thing. He's diagnosed with coronavirus. He uh, can then voluntarily upload the fact that he has been diagnosed voluntarily opt into this uh, to a cloud setting that will be kind of a, a repository of this information. Then let's say Claire, she's over here. She gets updates of the people that have been diagnosed with coronavirus every now and then. Um, she receives an alert, not identifying John, but telling her that she may have had contact near a person uh, that has been diagnosed with COVID-19 and that she should probably go get tested for this. Um, nothing is identifiable. It's all opt-in. If you don't want to do it, you can't. And to me, the thing that makes me go, you know, this is certainly a privacy compromise, but I also think if, like, if Google was doing it alone, I would not feel good about it. I think the destruction to Apple's reputation would be so serious that I'm kind of willing to give them the benefit of the doubt when it comes to this. It's like iMessage. We've never seen the code to prove that it's end-to-end -end encrypted before, but I trust Apple on that. And I, I think that they wouldn't get involved with this if they weren't willing to hold it to really high standards of uh, privacy and, and anonymity. So I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying. I still have concerns, and mine are at this point less around the privacy although uh, considerations, although I do think they are vast. And I will say that although you're right that this would, would definitely be a massive hit to um, Apple's reputation if something were found to be untrue, I also unfortunately feel like this is a sort of situation where if something were to happen where this information weren't as private or weren't as secure or, you know, identities weren't as protected as, as we would hope, that there would be a certain amount of wiggle room, frankly, because we're dealing with a global pandemic and, and that would be used as a reason for people to kind of excuse um, uh, behavior that, that may or may not be appropriate. That said, my my biggest concern, honestly, is is anybody going to to use this or or opt into this enough for it to actually be useful? I'm not opposed to the idea in theory. I think my bigger question is just: is this actually going to be adopted in you know um, uh, widespread enough for it to actually make a difference? I think, like genuinely, like I, I don't because I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. You know, we have a situation where 
in some countries and in some locations, maybe that's true. But in the United States, we have people who were still, and I'm not talking about people who don't have a choice. I'm talking about people who are still refusing to adhere to social distancing policies and are, are going to, you know, the parks and, you know, beaches and are doing other stuff. Uh, we have that happening all over the country, especially in places that haven't been hit super hard, although they will. But, but for now, you have people who are ignoring that stuff. If people aren't taking regular stuff, you know, so, uh, stuff seriously enough, I, I genuinely wonder, is anybody going to be willing, are, are those people going to be willing to install something on their phone and opt into this? So my opinion on this, I, I, if you, if you had asked me two months ago, would I believe that the United States would, in a largely voluntary way, stick to the 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 quarantine measures and the stay at home orders? I would not have believed you. I would have expected us to get an F minus on this. And I think overall we've done a really good job. Most of it voluntarily. There aren't really, there are of course stories of police abuses, but overall people are staying home because it's in their self-interest to stay home. And I, I do believe that people concerned about this, I, I think they would use it. It's not a hundred percent solution, but I think it's certainly, I mean, if it's a 20% solution, it's, I think that's helpful. The, the truth is the economy is not going to reopen until we get very widespread testing. And I can see a tool like this helping people um, kind of loosely ferret out who is a good candidate to get a test right away and who is not. I would feel more comfortable and I think I would feel like this would be maybe potentially more helpful if there were, in addition to having contact tracing for people who have had the virus and whatnot, um, you know, if, to or who or, or who are currently have it as far as people who have already been exposed and have already gotten over it. You know, like if once we have antibody tests, like to me, that would be as useful as something else to know just so when we're looking at helping with herd mentality or just for other kind of edification to say, all right, you know, these people have already, you know, come in contact with the virus and have, have already, um, been able to, um, uh, you know, uh, overcome and have, have are, are no longer sick. Um, that would be useful to me. I mean, if that, that that was helped uh, with it. I think it's good because it's one thing, you know, like if you say you've come into contact with somebody who has been exposed, you might need to take a test. But as this goes goes on longer and longer, there are going to be plenty of people who've already had it, who, you know, the contact tracing might not help with them. You know, like if, if I've already had, if I already had it, let's say I had it in February and I, that's now April. So I'm not going to um, test positive, but I'm also not going to show up on the radar for, for any sort of contact tracing stuff. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that would be a better answer. Um, I worry, you know, there's a story that came out today about South Korea and they're seeing a resurgence of uh, coronavirus there. They, they're widely praised as having been very successful. The truth is we don't know how long you get immunity for. Right. We don't know how long those antibodies are in your system for an antibody test. And it may be of limited use. We just simply don't know. So uh, again, I think it makes sense to develop multiple like 20% solutions and and hope for it. But I think you're dead on. This could give people false confidence. I mean, imagine going out there and saying, oh, I'm safe. I downloaded this app and you're using it incorrectly or 
you know, people or somebody I mean, has symptoms but can't get a test for some reason and therefore can't get the diagnosis to get the code right. to notify you. Right. I, I mean, right. in that sense, I kind of see it as something similar to masks where it is not like you're wearing a, a disease proof chamber around yourself, but it's also not going to unless you like become ridiculously careless when you're wearing it, it's not going to hurt you. It it like the help it will give will, even though it's not a cure all, will still mitigate some harm. Um, unless yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, that's sort of true, except I mean, I would say, I think with masks, the bigger thing is honestly, it becomes a cultural thing. I think one of the reasons why, and, and actually this was a, a conversation that I had with some people, I think it was in early February when I, uh, right before I went to Australia, um, where I was talking with people and, and I learned, you know, about the, the cultural reason why people in Asia have been wearing masks since SARS and that it is a cultural thing. It's, and it's about as kind of a signal that says, I care about your health, yeah. which I think is honestly why we're trying to encourage people now to wear masks of any type. It doesn't, can be a cloth mask, can be a rag mask. It can be, you know, a paper or whatever. It becomes about a, a cultural signal. This, I don't think is a cultural signal. I, I don't think that there's a way that, especially because it's supposed to be anonymous and because it's supposed to be kind of private. Like, I, you know, I'm not going to be yeah. wearing a sticker or a button that says, oh, I've got this app installed. You know what I mean? But let me put the real question out there uh, because I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. Will, will either of you like actually, you know, install this and like opt into it. Absolutely. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right uh, now I'm going to be honest right now. I'm going to say no. Um, I, I I'm not based on, I, I would need to see more information. That's my honest assessment. Yeah. And I guess That's fair. Yeah, another yeah. thing that I guess comes up is Google and Apple are involved in building this and they'll be implementing whatever security they can. But if the government is managing it, it, like if the government is ultimately in control of it and I don't trust our not. government, that's right. another issue. Uh, Casey in his uh, newsletter mentioned that what Hong Kong is doing right now is um, distributing digital tracking bracelets to everyone like at the airport, which on the surface, I think sounds more dystopian. But for me, I prefer that because it's not tied to a device that I'm not getting rid of. I have my right. I'm not getting rid of my phone. But if say the pandemic ends, if it comes to a, a, an end point, however that happens to be defined, I'm not sure. And I can throw this bracelet in the trash. That to me is more, um, more private than, than what this proposal is. I, I, I do just want to say, according to the standard that's out there, it's not stored on a central server. The government does not administer this database um, according to the, the, the paper that they've put out. So mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it couldn't be misused. I just want to be clear that's not the intention as they're yes. building this, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I totally believe that everyone is doing this to the best of to the best of their ability and with the best intentions it's just one of those things where I, I think for me it feels like a sort of privacy rubicon uh even though obviously this is an emergency here are my messy feelings about this i kind of feel the same way about this that i am feeling about amazon right now where my personal feelings about amazon and them being evil have not changed however in this situation, we've seen a lot of people relying on that company for food and other products that they absolutely need to live. Um, and 
that's it, it it's a situation where the importance of Amazon has kind of, in in our culture has kind of been revealed but also when god willing this pandemic ends whatever further power they have <laughs> obtained in our society is not going to go away and will be even further entrenched and that's not necessarily good and it's also it also doesn't necessarily mean i'm like waving a flag to go boycott Amazon right now because people genuinely need it. Like you can't tell anyone to, to not use it because of that. Um, it's just right. one of those kind of messy situations where we've come to this point where the government can't necessarily provide for us in the way that in, in a widespread way that we need at this moment. And Amazon has stepped in to do that. And we can't really come back from that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, when you look at what's happening with the post uh, postal service, you know, uh, and and the fact that there is real talk about that not being uh, oh. bailed out, which is insanity, which is. is absolute <laughs> insanity. When you realize that it's like, you know, that Amazon for years now has been working on their own like delivery system and kind of cry- trying to come up with their own like USPS and FedEx competitor, which look makes total sense. If you are shipping as much and doing as much transport as Amazon does, you would be crazy not to look at a way that you could say, well, maybe we should have our own planes and our own delivery mechanisms. That's not in any way like a, a, a crazy thing to think about. What is crazy is that when we look at this situation and we think about this is what happens when you privatize and offload essential parts of society. Mm-hmm. And and if it can happen to the post office, it can happen to police departments. Uh, it's already happened to, to you know, um, jails and prisons, um, you know, but it could happen to other like very essential parts of society. And the mail is one of the most essential parts of society. Uh, it just is. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I'm with you on, on, on wanting to be, I, I'm much more, um, I guess, uh, uh, sympathetic to Amazon than you are, um, uh, normally. And, and, but in this case, you know, it's, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. We can't tell people to boycott them because they are, uh, are, you know, holding an essential service as are frankly, um, uh, things like Instacart and other things like as, as gross as some of the mm-hmm. things around that are people do need food and need things delivered. There are like essential services that need to, and, and systems that need to get up and running. And, and I'm very glad that we at least have these mechanisms in place because it would be chaos if we didn't, even more chaotic mm-hmm. if we didn't. But yeah, we have to keep in mind when you give this power over, it's not going to go back. Mm-hmm. Like that's the yeah. But, but okay, so one one question though, and this is to both of you. So when you have your iPhone, have you turned on your health kit data where it measures that for your for your Apple Watch, Christina? Yeah. So I mean that is something that could equally be used for huge abuse. I mean, they are taking that information. They they sometimes use it in studies, but they get you to opt in first. They are talking about using that data uh, to figure out uh, if you have coronavirus possibly. I I I understand that it's a slightly different engineering uh, uh, way that the product is engineered, but that is also something that has a huge um, potential for abuse, like knowing what your heart rate is, your sleep, your your body oxygenation. I mean, what is the the privacy difference? Well, to me, A, that information is stored in a secure enclave on my physical device and is only transmitted to others if I like am directly saying either yes, I opt into the study or um, B, if my health provider has a way to receive that information, which so far none of my health providers have. Uh, B, um, you know, and some of the other information that some of my other devices could have would be stored in that. So like I have a smart scale 
and that information can go into HealthKit. Um, but that device, I know when I use it, if it has its own app or if its own login, that could go anywhere. And I'm aware of that when I use it. So I think it's a different thing about how it's stored. I'll also say this, my insurance does not require that I give them information and have like a, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or whatever and, and share information with them in order to get a free device or to get other information. And if they did, I would tell them like under no uncertain terms where to go. Like I would not use it. I would not opt into that. To me, it is absolutely unconscionable what will happen and what is already happening where insurance companies are trying to entice people with free, you know, um, health devices, fitness trackers, Apple watches or whatever, so they can get access to your data. Because what they really want to do is be able to punish people or kick people off or raise premiums on people who have, you know, health conditions that fall outside of certain realms. So if that were asked of me, I would say absolutely not under no circumstances. I don't care what you're quote unquote giving me for free. I'm not giving you that information. Um, whereas in this case, you know, it's not stored on the device. It by, it's by, you know, nature of how it works. It's a network thing. And I think to Simone's point, yeah, we, the way that the papers are written, the government is not going to have control over this, but I'm still very reticent of anything where we're handing this information over and, and the government could have anything to do with it. Just candidly. I just, I don't trust them mm -hmm. either in terms of, I, I don't think they have the competence, but I also don't think that they have like the, the morals or the ethics to be trusted with, with this. So from a competence level, I don't trust them to be able to use it correctly. And then from like a, a moral standpoint, um, and an ethical standpoint, I don't trust them to use it the right way. I Before don't we trust wrap them, this up, I, I want to, Hey, yeah. Ooh, but we Sorry. will come back. <laughs> But first, okay. let me tell you that this episode of Rocket is brought to you by SoundSource from Rogue Amoeba. Oh my god! Yeah, we're excited. excited. SoundSource is a sound control utility so good, it should be built into macOS. Whether you listen to podcasts, blast music, or stream video, SoundSource is for everyone who uses audio on their Mac. So this is freaking awesome. It basically lives up there in the bar on the top of your screen. I'm smart, I know tech. Uh, and you can control, like from that place the sound, the volume of every app that you're using. So like I, this experience that I have all the time um, because I am a weird person is I occasionally will, with my headphones, listen to soft music when I'm in a Zoom meeting or something. Um, so I'm always like going back and forth between Spotify, like adjusting that volume minutely. And then I don't, I don't think there's a way to adjust Zoom volume aside from your system volume. But this basically eliminates the need for me to be bopping back and forth and adjusting these things kind of I can be like okay Spotify this volume here's my system volume here's my zoom volume boom amazing what um this is helpful for me also as a person who sometimes listens to music while I'm editing videos I and podcasts I do this all the time um so for I'm literally I'm the use case y'all yeah this is for yeah. me <laughs> yeah, I, I use it too. So for instance, I'm doing um, uh, the way that we're doing some of our remote video recordings right now is that um, I will like uh, connect a camera and then I will talk into my podcasting camera as kind of using it as a boom mic, but then I'm getting information from somebody that I'm talking to, like I'm connecting using NDI to their Skype and they're recording stuff and capturing it that way. Um, so the problem with that is that usually I have like my, um, audio going through my microphone and then I'm listening to things that way. Um, in a case like this, I don't want to be able to hear them speaking through my mic headphones. I want to hear them like through my regular output. Um, but I'm still going to be talking into the mic. And so for those situations, I use sound source and I'm like, okay, 
just have my audio output of my computer and I will use my headphones for the input the other places. And that way I don't have to be on camera with headphones in, um, but I don't have to like go through the system process of resetting every single thing. Mm-hmm. I don't just use this one. I use everything Rogue Amoeba makes. Oh, yeah, they, me too. <laughs> are, they are beyond necessary. Audio Hijack is an amazing program. It allows you to create virtual sound sources on your Mac that may yep. mix a bunch of different things together. We have a virtual call time system here that is a work of engineering art because it's so <laughs> complicated. It's all thanks to their stuff. So yeah, my, loopback is also yeah, great. Loopback, um, amazing. I love, yes. yeah. Oh, so absolutely. my message is anything they make, just know they do the best in the absolute business on this. And if you need this, do not hesitate to do business with them. They're great. Other uh, features of SoundSource are that you, aside from being able to boost volume levels, you can add an equalizer. You can apply advanced audio units to any audio on your Mac. Uh, You can also just get fast access to your Mac's audio devices without digging in system preferences, which is something that, as you might know, I have a podcast. It's called Rocket. So I do this every week. Um, And if you have a DisplayPort or HDMI device that doesn't offer volume adjustment, SoundSource can help. Mm -hmm. It gives those devices a proper volume slider and the super volume keys feature makes your keyboard volume controls work as well. That rules. We've said everything there is to say. (laughs) All this power is available from your menu bar. That's what it's called with SoundSource. You can visit macaudio.com slash rocket to check it out. That's macaudio.com slash rocket. Download a free trial, y'all. Try that out and then save. Sorry, I'm hiccuping because I just finished a big bottle of... Bolt House Farms Berry Boost Fruit Juice. <laughs> That's right. It's an ad read and an ad read, except it's not. It's not. This is just about the free trial for SoundSource. And then when you decide to buy it, save 20% with the coupon code ROCKET. That's <laughs> macaudio.com slash ROCKET and the coupon code ROCKET. So thanks to the Audio Wizards at Rogue Amoeba for sponsoring this show. Obviously, we've been waiting. <laughs> <We're>... <laughs> Oh, we love you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, I was so I was grocery shopping right before this, and I was staring at the fruit for so long, and I was like, "My God, maybe not leaving the house and eating only beans for the ne- last week has made me say crave fruits." And I bought this. How big is this? Thirty-two ounce bottle of <laughs> fruit, Berry Boost fruit thing and i <laughs> drank the whole thing during this podcast because apparently i needed fruit really badly <laughs> anyway um that really wasn't sponsored that was just brought to you by me drinking the rest of that bottle of fruit juice really quickly while brie was talking and then suffering the consequences um hey wow i'm gonna quibby it's qu- wait actually no sorry final thoughts i've derailed this entire show final thoughts on <laughs> just, contract just two tracing. seconds this will be a, two sentences Do it. so i i completely agree with you christina i don't trust federal government at all at all at all at all would not trust an insurance company would trust no one i do trust apple and you know i trust them because i think their economic future of their company would be at stake if they f this up so you know there it is uh different people can have different views on this and they're reasonable yeah That's the thing. We don't know much right now, and we're going to know, hopefully, soon. And we'll keep you updated, because that's what we do. Now, this cool new app called Quibi has launched. It's a short-form video streaming app that's on your phone. 
You can watch shows, movies, in vertical and horizontal mode. I have a show on that platform, so I'm going to be quiet and let Brianna and Christina talk about their feelings about it because I'm compromised. I <laughs> will come to your guys' houses and kill you if you say anything bad. <laughs> no, I won't. <laughs> Love you. Uh, I think, I think, um, well, Christina, why don't you go first? What do you think about it? So I think that the technology is really interesting insofar as how it works basically is there is it quibi stands for quick bites uh the name is terrible we're we're gonna get started with that the name is absolutely awful um uh, but the name for most of these services if we're being honest is terrible uh youtube is probably the only name that's not like awful and and even it's not great right um you know so uh but the idea would be these are supposed to be quick bites, uh, under 10 minutes, things that you watch on your phone, and you can watch them vertically or um, horizontally. So if you're watching something vertically, if you flip your phone, then all of a sudden the camera angle kind of changes and the shot becomes wider um, or tighter depending on the circumstance. So, and that's actually kind of a cool option because you see more or less depending on what you're watching, and, and it's, it's a good experience that way. Um, I think that the content right now is kind of mixed. Some of it I've, I've found sort of compelling. Some of it I'm kind of not sure what they're going for. I think that 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 is I'm not I'm not real clear yet on the on the content situation. I think some of it is better than others. They've certainly signed a bunch of big names, but that doesn't mean anything. So did Facebook. So have a lot of ple- people. You know uh, what what was Verizon's service called? I can't even remember now. But you know uh, there there's been no shortage of companies that spend a lot of money on uh, getting content for these things. My biggest thing though. And it's interesting because they're already talking about wanting to address this is the limit being limited to watching this on your phone. I didn't realize that that would feel like such a massive limit, but it does. Like I realize, I guess, especially with coronavirus, while we're all at home, that I watch a tremendous amount of um, of content on my iPad or on my TV or on my laptop or whatever. Um, And, and it feels weird to be like tied only to your, to your phone. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm both positive and I'm really negative on the service. I just want to say speed run by Polygon is an excellent show. Good job, Simone. Love yes. that show a lot. Speed run is great. Um, I, I think, so this is why I think I watch YouTube an embarrassing amount. It is Same. by far my number one channel that I watch. And I think it was, inevitable that someone else started putting out YouTube type content. So you start thinking, how can you differentiate yourself, right? Um, The thing that YouTube does better than anyone else is hyper segmented content. Um, Resident Evil 3 came out last week. There is a woman that does specifically survival horror stuff on YouTube. She's massively successful. I think she has half a million uh, subscribers very hyper-targeted. When it comes to cars, you've got people that specialize in doing Porsche content. So when the new manual Porsche comes out, there's going to be someone that puts out a video with every single option talking about it in depth for three hours. That is what YouTube does better than anything else is that kind of, of hyper niche content. So I think, I think, I think they've done very well 
in offering stuff that where the production value is higher and the celebrities are higher and kind of, it's generally good concepts. Like one show is about, it's a car show with Idris Elba, right? Where he's going up against a professional uh, race driver. I think my critique of it would be, it doesn't really speak to any of those niches in a, in a knowledgeable way. Like Idris Elba's show is a really good example. If you had a car guy doing a car guy show on, on YouTube, it would be filled with very specific information. This is just a bunch of beautiful shots of Idris Elba driving a truck through, you know, oil cans on a racetrack. <laughs> and it's kind of lowbrow. Uh, the thing right. we were joking about at the top of the show, like, Golden Arm. This is their um, the, their sort of horror series. What is it? The Fifty States of Terror in America, yeah. filled with short stories for every single state. They have a woman that won a freaking, I believe, it's an Academy Award, doing a soap opera about having her arm chopped off and getting a golden arm and becoming obsessed with it. It's hilariously bad. I'm a hundred percent into it. But it's kind of lowbrow at the same time. And right. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of with you. I mean, it's like a it's United States of Fright. I mean, there's some interesting concepts, but it seems like at least some of them, like you said, with the Idris Elba show, like that that was just something that they they were wanting to take advantage of his name. Um, I think that the stuff that works better are the things that are more native to the platform, like like Polygon speedrun show. I think yep. it makes a lot of sense. And that's sort of the sort of content made by people who have expertise in the content. Uh, unfortunately, I do feel like this was a case where they kind of signed on the names more than they signed on maybe the getting the concepts themselves. I also, you know, the idea is that everything is 10 minutes or less. And I think that makes sense. Although, you know, uh, the amount of time that people are willing to watch has gone up tremendously. I mean, YouTube, again, is a great example of that. I, like you, spend an embarrassing amount of time on YouTube. And most YouTube videos now go over 10 minutes because you don't get paid. Or you don't get like the ads unless you go over 10 minutes. So you'll even see sometimes people padding things with silence or with really long credits or with other stuff to get to that point. So, you know, having that kind of what feels like an arbitrary length of time doesn't make sense. It also, I think it's good in some ways because it would make it easy for you to just, you know, snack on, um, small little quick bites, which of course is the name, but when you have a whole bunch of time and you just kind of want to binge on things, you can run out of content really quickly. Uh, and, and I think this is something that YouTube also does really well. A, they have, um, they have a basically endless supply of content, but B, their algorithm, um, which, you know, has flaws is also eerily good about recommending stuff for you that you might want to watch and things that you might be interested in. And so you kind of have this never ending supply of, of, you know, um, recommendations of other stuff you should, you should be watching. So you could literally, you know, spend hours upon hours, you know, watching YouTube without even thinking about it, even if the segments themselves are really short and, and Quibi doesn't have that yet. Right. Like it's, it's a kind of a limited amount of content right now that will increase, but you know, I think that that's going to be a, a challenge if you're hoping to get people to engage with stuff long-term. I don't know. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I, I just, I guess I feel like, you know, Homeland is a show that's on right now, right? It's an hour long show every single week. It's unbelievable quality. It's draining to watch 
it is exhausting to watch because there's so much happening with Carrie. And you don't always feel good after you're watching that. And, I mean, do you find sometimes, even with that really appointment TV, quality, Emmy Award-winning thing, sometimes you just don't want to get that invested in it. And I feel like there's some... Totally. I feel like there it makes sense for there to be some product that's in between YouTube and say Showtime. Do you know what I mean? Something that's a little yes. more scripted and but but shorter. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I think that there's definitely a place for that. And I think that if you can, I think that the key here is to have more content that is made specifically to the platform. And I would say that is true for any streaming service. You know, the original Netflix original stuff, a lot of it didn't really take advantage of Netflix super well. It, it took a, a while for creators to kind of know that they had to start creating things from more of a binge, you know, kind of um, lifestyle. And, and the same has been true, you know, Apple's first attempts at content were terrible for Apple TV. Like they were absolutely like horrible, like worst of the worst, you know, the, 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 um, the apps uh, show one of the worst things I've ever seen on anything. Um, just, you know, complete trash. Um, and, and now they have some fairly good content. I think the concept here is really good <laughs> and they have, uh, the money and, and, and the, you know, people behind it. I just, I just hope that like it, it, ma- it makes a lot of, um, headlines to get every celebrity involved in a content deal, uh, especially in these pre coronavirus times, which is obviously when these deals were made, you know, it, 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 it you, you get a lot of ink that way. I think that works better though, when you can get not just names, but people who are passionate about a certain project and you can create interesting things that's more than just X celebrity does X thing, but is instead related to things that they're really passionate about or that they have an interest in, or it's a scripted project that they can do really well, um, versus just, you know, we're, we're, we're going to throw as many famous people as we can at this and, and hope that we can get people to pay money for it. Cause that's the thing too. This is ad supported and it costs what I think it's $5 a month. Um, which isn't a lot of money, but is also, a lot more than, than YouTube, you know, and, and is getting there and in, in, in terms of, you know, not that much less than, than uh, Disney plus. And so, you know, there's a lot of competition. I, I'm, I'm a lot more, um, bullish on this than a lot of other people, because I think that Jeffrey Kassenberg, who is behind this, uh, is, uh, you know, has one of the best track records in, in history in terms of Hollywood and entertainment stuff. And I, so I'm, I'm a lot more bullish than a lot of other people, but if, I am glad that, for instance, like I have like the whatever the trial period is right now, because I don't know if right now if this is something that I would say I will pay for. But I, I'm also hopeful that that more interesting content will come out of it. And I do think that the tech that they're doing is is interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. So, I mean, you know, frankly, Amazon uh, Prime streaming shipped with a lot less <laughs> uh, promising a concept, and I think it's turned into something truly amazing. You're, you're dead on. Great. You're, you're dead on. The yeah. only thing I'm going to say, the caveat there, is that Prime Now was free for Prime users, and and this is not. So, it's a to me, it's a little bit of a different thing when you're talking about what starts as a value add for people who were ostensibly buying something for free shipping and then got all this other stuff on top of it versus something coming out of the gate, you know, 10 years later being, being told, uh, nine years later being told, um, you know, you have to pay $5 a month for this or whatever. 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's a different market right now. That I think uh, the idea of paying for a streaming service is not alien to most people, no, especially not. people I, on a it, cell phone. It, it, no, it's not. And I think that, that getting bundled with certain uh, cell phone providers and stuff like that, too, I think is is great. Uh, I, I'm just saying that, that there's a difference in something that came to market in 2011 uh, and and had like no originals and and a lot of like, you know, like the the bargain bin, you know, part of the video store, you know, content for streaming versus how the market has matured in 2020 when you're competing against Disney. You guys have fun? <laughs> yep. I did. Oh, I wow. wish you could have chimed in, but thank you for your journalistic integrity, Simone. <laughs> Yay! Um, all right, let's talk about a video game. Woohoo! Do you guys want to talk about video games? Um, hey, Final Fantasy VII Remake is out now on the PlayStation 4, and I am um, I'm, I'm excited. I'm really excited. So I uh, am a fan of Final Fantasy VII. I came into this game through the uh, movie Advent Children, which is an unappreciated classic uh, (laughs) that everyone should enjoy. And then I played the game on PlayStation 2 with like the, it was was this weird back way in where it was playable on PS2, but you needed a PS1 card to save it on or something. I'm not really clear how it worked. I was at someone's house. Um, and now this iconic JRPG has been remade basically entirely like a bunch of content added to what is the first what was the first <coughs> disc of the game, um, extending it to a 40 hour length, the length that is now a standard video game. Um, hopefully I, I Sony is going to remake the rest of the game as well, but we don't know when the rest of it will come out. But this is rocks sorry i'm not impartial (laughs) my journalistic integrity is gone um i'm mostly i'm not gonna agree with anyone today oh oh no you don't like it well we'll yeah i'm surprised here okay so okay yeah sorry continue to go on simone basically i'm most excited about this because they've added a bunch of character moments and updated certain parts of the game that felt kind of aged uh I have read that some of the things that they've added are more baggage and less like fun new content, but it's still really exciting for me to see uh, these characters that I love look so hot. Um, <laughs> and that's my feeling on it. <laughs> they're all, I'm they not defensible. I'm oh, not yeah. going to defend myself here. I'm just happy that everyone's so hot. No, you're, you're <laughs> dead on like the hotness. I was a little bit surprised. I was like, Oh my God. God. Thank you. Everybody is so attractive. I'm yeah. totally with you on that. Yeah. Um, no, I'm with you. And I love the fact that Jesse, who my only like impression of her before this was this like, you know, 30 vertices polygon <laughs> blob. And now they've made her not just ultra hot, but having this incredible backstory as a failed actress turned terrorist. Yeah. <laughs> we love like, it. We love to I'm see just it. Like, wow, this is so it's it's okay. This is how just let me go off and, and go tell off, you everything how I feel. Okay. So look, this is this is a good game, but there are there are several thoughts I have about it. If you were really, really intimately familiar with the original it is hard to play this game and constantly be expecting story beats and to be taken way off track with stuff yes. that 
has great character moments. Like Jesse is a fantastic example. You find out about her family. She's got these great side plots. I love her as a character, but it is for, for real fans of the original, it is distracting to have a story that, you know, this well constantly sidetracked by, by side quests and all this stuff that, that, that is weird. Um, my other thing with the game is look, I played Code Vein. I played Catherine Full Body. I played Dead or Alive. I have no problem playing video games with hypersexualized women, or I would have nothing to play. That's not <laughs> where I'm coming from on this. But what I think is is makes this game very mixed with the way they portray the the women characters in this game is Final Fantasy has traditionally had some of the strongest written women in video game history. And what I think is better in this game is every character is written in a much deeper, well-voice-acted, compelling way. Tifa is a great example. In the early part of the game, she's clearly in agony about the choices of what she's doing, and she's struggling with the morality of it. That is amazing. But then it undermines all of that when she's animated in a way that is hyper suggestive in every single scene. She's horny for cloud in everything she says. And it just, it feels, it doesn't feel congruent with the character. And it just, it, it's like everything else in this game. It's amazing. And it's kind of uncomfortable at the same time. Does that make sense to you too? Yeah, although, I mean, I too am horny for Cloud all the time. I just want to be, like, clear about that. So, I mean, that, I, I guess, I didn't pick up on that as much. Like, that wasn't a, really my my thing. The bigger thing with me is, and and I will admit, I mean, it's been a while since I played Final Fantasy VII, but I've, I've played that game a lot. You know, I played it when it first came out. I bought it for the PC uh, even uh, when, when that came out and in, in, uh, in, like, 98 or something. I, um, you know, I played it. Uh, the remakes, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the ports, whatever, um, on, on multiple consoles. Um, I've, I've played, it, it's an RPG I've played many times, like it, and, and it's always been one that I very much enjoyed. We've talked before. I mean, I think I, for whatever, even though I know it's not as, as good of a game, but I always liked Final Fantasy VIII better. Uh, but, um, but I've played the game a lot. And so for me, it was a little weird when you expect certain beats and you expect certain things to have it go in this other direction. That said, I do really like it. I think it's a very interesting experiment and it's, it's a very, very, very smart take on how to do this sort of game and this sort of approach. Like I, I am actually really impressed by the, the artistic kind of achievement in that respect when regards to story and some other things, because I can't even imagine the sort of challenge it would be to be remaking a game as iconic as final fantasy seven, which can, can either of you think of a more iconic, um, RPG Zelda maybe, but Zelda's not really an RPG. Like it's, it's kind of a, you know, like hybrid thing, but other than, than some of the Zelda games, like I can't think of a single game in any of the different RPG series that has sold more copies. It's more iconic and has like, has had a bigger like cultural impact than Final Fantasy seven. Can, can either of you? There are later Final Fantasy games that technically sold more copies, but this absolutely had a bigger uh, impact on people. Yeah, I I definitely can't think anything. I think your Zelda example is probably most on point, but it's like you said, so different because they do keep making new Zelda games. And if you did, I mean, I guess you could, 
I, I don't know. I guess it, it is strange to think about because it's like, well, what if they updated? What if they remade Link's Awakening but didn't remake it like they remade it last year where it's the exact same mechanics? It's right, just that's a graphic saying. overhaul, but right, they completely made it Breath of the Wild. <laughs> right, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that would yeah. be an interesting thing. Like, like if they took Ocarina or if they took A Link to the Past, right? So, like, I would think that Ocarina and Link to the Past are probably the two biggest Zelda games. Would people, would you agree with? I mean, other yeah. before Breath of the yeah. Wild, would, would you agree with me on that? That those yeah. are the two big ones, Ocarina and Link to the Past. So if we took those and you thought about, okay, how do you, yeah, how would you remake that but not make it a straight, just a graphical update? That's a really interesting it thing. Is. Like, how do you do that? Like, what does that do? Or if you took something like Super Mario 64 and you remade that, but it wasn't just a graphical update and you added different types of levels and stuff like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like I think in story games, though, it's even that much more like both interesting and scary because you have the chance to go in depth and create these backstories. But you also have a chance of like people who love the game and love the story as it exists being annoyed or not liking how certain things are or not being clear on the timing. You know what I mean? I think it's uh, I think for modern for modern RPG players, it might be like if you haven't played Final Fantasy seven. It might not be as disruptive, I imagine, if you're used to something like like our current open world RPGs where you are constantly disrupted by side quests and you choose to take side quests rather than following what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and I could see another perspective on it for people who do love Final Fantasy VII as well, which is like in the same way that Advent Children is a lot of fan service. Um, just having the option to kind of roll around in more content rather than directly like narrative content can be very fun. It's almost like you having the game and having the fan service or the fan fiction as well. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that I think they've actually been really successful with that. I mean, that said, like, I just, my hats are off to Square Enix on this because I don't know how I would even want to approach a project like this. I would be so scared yeah. of either pissing off, you know, the existing very fervent fans and people who grew up on this game. I and mean, for a lot of people, this was like their first RPG for a lot of people. I mean, this was like the, this was a really, to my mind, this is the first really big mainstream RPG. And, um, so, so I think I would be scared about that, but I'd also be scared about for people who, okay, how do you bring in maybe a new audience and how do you take mm-hmm. things in a different way? Right. I don't know. And Final I, Fantasy 15 made massive changes to the, to the, to the series to bring in a new audience. And I'm okay with that. Final Fantasy 15 is not a game for me. It's my least favorite by far. I'm fine with them remaking this and altering the story in, in massive ways. I really am. That doesn't bother me. I guess this is my question. If you understand the first game and spoilers, okay, you start with the Mako reactor, you go to, you know, you go to section eight, you learn about people at the bar, you go on a second mission, it doesn't go well, you find out about Cloud's past. Like that is a tight narrative structure that happens in the first three hours of the game. For the first three hours of this game, what do you do? You go on a bombing mission, you really understand Barrett and Jesse much deeper than you did in the original, and then you go to Section 8, Sector 8, and you spend a bunch of time doing fetch quests like hunting for a cat. And then you spend the next hour or two going to Jesse's parents' house to get a blasting detonator that's less powerful. And my question is, is that a better story? It's better character moments, 
but I don't think it's a better story. Coming no, from I mean, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, this just sounds like, yay! <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think you're wrong there, but it's interesting, right? I mean, I think that's I think that's a valid critique. I don't necessarily agree with, uh, like, every place you're coming from, but I think that's a valid critique. And I think what's interesting there is you do see it, whereas, you know, the way that you would do a game now uh, like that, a, a, a way you would do a game now like Final Fantasy VII is you would want to extend it out. It's kind of like you know, movie series where, you know, they split a couple of the Hunger Games books into two movies, the same way they split like some of the Twilight books into two movies and other stuff where, you know, that there was that trend for a while because you want to, frankly, you want to get as much bang for your buck, as much money you can from people, as much time. Um, And that's kind of what it feels like. It does feel like they're kind of padding things in certain ways to make it multiple volumes and and, and bigger and bigger. And part of me um, uh, can't find fault in that if, the sum of everything that comes out of it is really good. Like God help me. I, that the hunger games trilogy was actually, <laughs> uh, that those films, those five movies were actually really good. Um, I, the same cannot be said for twilight, but, but hunger games actually, I think that the films were, were well done. Um, but you know, um, and sometimes Harry Potter is kind of a similar thing where they, you know, split the final two there into multiple films. But, um, you know, in some if, if the sum of the parts is valid and you get more out of it, then I'm not opposed to it. But I do feel like that raises a good question, which is to say, how much is this is just for padding to, you know, make more content and, and presumably make more money? And how much of this is really servicing the actual story? I think that's a very, very good question. Yeah. 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 I don't necessarily disagree with any of your arguments, Bree, but here I am. <laughs> Trash. I'm still going to play it and oh, yeah. I will enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, guys. What are you up to this week? Bree, you first. Oh, God. Um, I'm campaigning. It is tough to do a coronavirus. I'm doing the best I can. And uh, I'm losing my damn mind from not leaving my house. Oh, my God. <laughs> Send help. What about you, Christina? I'm also losing my damn mind for not leaving my house. Um, and I'm a little bit sick with a sinus infection, but that is clearing up. I am, uh, I'm playing the stonks market, oh, uh, still hot and heavy. <laughs> Uh, so my big thing there is I've been using turnip.exchange to find people's islands that have high prices and also find people who have time traveled into different places that are still selling turnips. So if you time it right and if you're willing to you have a lot of free time on your hands, then you can wait in multiple queues and buy turnips on the cheap and then immediately go and flip them at high priced islands. Just saying that's my latest jam. And I need to play more Final Fantasy because... Um, I after this conversation, I really just want to get back to it. So that's I, I, that's I just want to say, Rocket listeners, I've probably gotten twenty messages from people that want to coordinate on stock market manipulation. I promise <laughs> I will get to you this week. We'll all make like a mega group chat and yeah, yeah, we should have like a Google spreadsheet or something. Yeah, I will get to that. Mm. I sold it for ninety this week, which isn't bad. That's until not, that's been- people started in my chat, started reporting prices of 600 <sighs> And I have stonk market regrets. Well, I'm again, by no means again. a loser. I bought it 90 However, am I upset? Yes. Do I have a reason Obviously. to be upset? Not really. <laughs> again, again, Simone, when these things happen, turnip.exchange, find an island that is that where Daisy May is, just go buy a ridiculous amount of turnips and then go visit your friend's island and sell it 600. Yep. Yep. I'm going to do it. 
Ah, what am I doing this week? I filmed a video about interior design and Animal Crossing that I'm going to be working on for the rest of the week. And uh, in the spare time that I have, I'm going to be playing Animal Crossing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> still there. Still there. I also Same. started watching The Leftovers on HBO because I'm a so masochist. Good. Yeah, it's really good. Did everyone know this? That the critically acclaimed show The Leftovers is quite good, actually? No, it is really good. And, and I think it's still free. Um because HBO no, was running like No, it's not a, one of the free ones. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, well, you don't pay for HBO anyway, Simone. No, so. I don't. <laughs> but for our listeners, you do have to pay for HBO because it's not included in HBO's uh, free shows <laughs> thing that they're doing. Which is a bummer because it honestly would be the perfect, like, because it, it, it's perfect. Quarantine. I mean, it's great quarantine programming for, for anyone who hasn't watched The Leftovers. is about what happens if there's a rapture and it's what happens to the people who were did not leave yep 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 uh <laughs> wow christina where can i find you online you can find me at film underscore girl on the twitters and the instagrams and um i'm not gonna have a video up this week because i'm moving to a bi-weekly schedule but you can find the video that i did last week at youtube.com slash microsoft developer and um, i'll have one there next week too so Thanks. that's where i'm at brianna what about you uh, you can find me on uh, Brianna Wu on Twitter, and you can see me on Facebook at Developer Brianna Wu. And you can find me on Twitter at Doom Quasar, and pretty much everywhere else at Doom Quasar, except at YouTube, where it's youtube.com slash polygon, baby. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rockets. I hope you've enjoyed it and found it educational. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, hey, if you did like it, please do leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate all the ratings and reviews, especially now in this time of economic strangeness. Um, Even if you, ratings and reviews, that doesn't cost any money. Hey, hey, enjoy the show. Love you. This episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 Terminated.